0: Have you seen me dice bike? The Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice and this is the Grognard Files podcast talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs in Dirt Towers in Adlington Chorley in the northwest of the UK, where, according to a recent review, you can expect dry humour and accents. Here in my den, I'm surrounded by my accumulated collection of RPG stuff. To my right is my great library of RPGs, which continues to expand despite myself, and my grognard files. For this episode, I've surrounded myself with little booklets of joy. Folded paper, staples and ink hold together the artefacts from a bygone age. This episode is all about the fanzine and the fanzine back in the 1980s. Here at the Grognard Files, we like to look back to look forward. And there's nothing better than fanzines and postal games to anticipate the glorious ethos of Here comes everybody! of the internet some of these zines even made it to the difficult third issue Got next stop jupiter the journal of the senseless carnage society runestone lankmar daily star verbal diarrhea burning rubber the role-playing karma sutra the fiery cross chaos lord take that you fiend Tempestuous orifice and much, much more. To my left is my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll I'll just give it a tap. Ah, fantastic. Once again she's the journalist in Adamant's Goody Two Shoes video. Not so subtle innuendo is what we're all about here at the Grognard Files. If you've been reading my blog, grognardfiles.com, in June 2017, you'll know that I've been to the UK Games Expo for the first time. And if you listen to the released podcast, episode 22, you'll hear me being overexcited about the experience. I don't get out much. While I was there, I was struck by how the Byzantine, the hobby, continues to be. Indie, OSR, Edition Wars, Story, trad, Dice, One Dice, Diceless, a myriad of genres and hacks. And I introduced myself to a few people and told them about what I did. Oh, well, I don't really listen to podcasts. Or, yeah, the grognard Fowls. Well, I don't really see myself as a grognard. Now, I'm not mentioning this because I felt they should know about the podcast. But it did make me realise that there's... Little wonder that fanzines and fan activity emerged from the hobby as the gaming industry has little hope of satisfying its weirdly diverse participants. Fanzines served a niche within a niche within a niche in the same way that self-publishing, blogging and podcasting does now. All fan activity in all hobbies have an important role. They create energy and enthusiasm to sustain things when the ebbs and flows of market forces threaten to destroy it. In the face of demands of attention on potential gamers with the advent of computer games, the changing demographics of the market and the sometimes inability of games publishers to avoid overreaching themselves and collapsing, it has been the fans that have kept RPGs going for so long. As well as keeping the hobby alive back in the 80s, the analogue world of zines was a hotbed of talent that would go on to shape the mainstream forces. In this episode, we're very pleased to interview Ian Marsh, who, along with Mark Gascoigne and Mike Lewis, created Dragonlord Zine before joining Games Workshop to shape the hobby in the mid to late 80s. Ian went on to become the editor of White Dwarf, And in this two-part episode, he talks about that experience. Dragonlords ran for 22 issues and was a mix of RPG ideas, news, reviews, interviews and great art from the likes of Hudson Shaw. It was the birthplace of Red Fox and VOP comic strips. But it was also noticeable for its blisteringly raw letters page and irreverent schoolboy humour that poked fun at the industry and fan figures of the day. Take this piece that featured humorous magical items. It contained something about Tim Olsen, who was one of our visiting contributors in episode 12, manager of the Dalling Road branch of Gaines Workshop back in the day. It goes like this. The Olsen Scroll. This tiny, stained, ancient piece of parchment contains the last Earthly writings of the venerable oriental bard all Sen the ancient runes can be deciphered to render the following: when I was young in Fair Baltimore, I never passed by the cake-shop door, and now I'm settled in London town six big Macs I have downed <laughs> well. In this part of the episode, Ian Marsh opens the box on his experiences in RPGs and how Dragon Lord's fanzine with its funny, irreverent and inventive content took hold of the imagination of British RPG scene and how he became editor of White Dwarf. Then we have another superb contribution from At Daily Dwarf from Twitter. For this episode only, he becomes the Daily Dagon as he talks about the contribution that Dagon fanzine made to the emergence of Call of Cthulhu as an important game. They say it's called Dagon, but it'll always be Dagon to me. Judge Blythe joins me in the room of role-playing rambling to talk about postal games. The origins of RPG zines is in PBMs, so we talk about our sometimes painful memories. I'll be back at the end of the podcast to bang on about our next grognard file zine. You do realise that the reason I do this podcast in the first place is because I'm a frustrated zine editor. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Open Box with Ian Marsh. Welcome to Open Box, where we open the box on the past, taking ourselves back in time to the halcyon days of the early 80s, before whizzing forward to the present to reflect on how the past has still remained with us. In this episode, it's a great honour to welcome Ian Marsh, one of the key players in the UK gaming scene in the early 80s, writer, game designer, gaming entrepreneur, and of course, editor of Dragon Lord's fanzine and White Dwarf. Hello Ian. Hello. (laughs) I didn't I didn't uh, miss anything off your CV there
1: I Um, probably embellished it rather (laughs) yes
0: okay then Ian let's start at the very beginning then so how did you get started in the hobby
1: Um, well I'm so. I started doing wargaming I took some epic soldiers to school one day to show a friend and while I was doing that someone behind me um, said do you know you can play games with those this is what in 1972 or something, and that ended up with me going to the school's War Games Club on Friday evenings. Then later on, um, Minithigs released their Mythical Earth range of figures, and um, another War Games group started up in the school to do fantasy uh, war games with those. And that's basically where I met Mark and Mike. Um, it's sort of um, it as a a group of us who just played fantasy war games and we played something like I think it was fGU Citadel which was a sort of little tower adventure in a tower game it's really ancient uh, and then on to D, uh, and and that's it you know it it, it it suddenly caught hold as an idea and I stopped playing conventional war games and started obviously role-playing using miniatures I was delighted that I had to paint only one miniature at a time, rather than 24, and I think I vowed um, never to paint another battalion of toy soldiers again, um, uh, however vows obviously <laughs> can't break
0: so, so this transition into um, D&D and playing the white box uh, game, were you the GM or were you mainly the player?
1: I was mainly the player at that time. Um, I because it was being introduced to us by, I think, Mark. Um, basically, he was uh, refereeing all the time. And, but basically, that was over a period of, what, two years uh, before I went off to university. Um, at which point, I introduced it to Surrey University's War Games Club. And I think I the first session I had, I had about 30 players turn up to, to learn about D&D and um, it it reduced fairly soon to a a core of manageable numbers, but um, there was certainly a lot of interest in it when I went to university. But we um, basically, at university, we moved on to playing RuneQuest after a a while again, because I came back um, over the summer term, uh, summer holidays, sorry, and um, Mark and Mike had gone on to playing RuneQuest, and so that one took over is how it goes with games every new system that comes out um you get to try although i don't think we ever went through chivalry and sorcery <laughs> um um but certainly i think looked at tunnels and trolls and stuff but uh, basically it's fairly mainstream with d and and rune quest
0: so, so at what point does dragon lords
1: appear dragon lord starts getting mentioned when i'm still at school Mark I believe had seen a copy of Troll Crusher fanzine um, basically shown it to Mike and joke about it being um, let's do it let's start a fanzine but that's basically how it how it was we've got the idea that we were going to do a fanzine but it took a long time to get going because I think what they wanted to do changed from week to week and so I went off to university I think I'd gone through one year of university before they I actually, I actually um, decided that they were going to produce it. And issue one came out. There's a very few copies of Dragon Lords number one where everyone who has worked on it signed the front cover. I wasn't an editor at that point. I, I was um, a contributor. Um, but I contributed so much. Uh, For the next issue that they just basically said would you like to be an editor and also I had an attractive student grant to help finance it uh, (laughs) And uh, what was the print run in those early editions it could only be about a couple of hundred yeah I mean even even at its peak dragon lords print run was 450 500 and that's in the later years which explains um, why it's, uh, it's so difficult to get
0: hold of because uh, i've got one here and it says price 50p on it but yeah, oh if i right. wanted to sell it now it would
1: uh it, it would be a lot more than that i think I, i've seen them priced at well over 100 pounds for certain editions um whether anyone actually achieves that is is something else very odd to think that um what are some quite immature writings when you're a teenager or or in your early 20s can suddenly be worth a vast amount of money to someone just because the magazine is, is what it is. I mean, you know, I'm sort of always quite proud of what I wrote anyway. But it's, it's odd to, to feel it, it's valued that highly when it is just a small niche in a niche hobby. Um,
0: so, so for people who've not seen Dragon Lord, how would you describe it?
1: <laughs> in glowing praise. Uh, <laughs> it's it's um, just an A5 double-sided magazine um, full of irreverent role-playing humour as well as some useful bits for your role-playing game. Very much reliant on fan art, Hudson Shore... I did quite a bit. There's lots of lovely little quirky animals. I drew a few things, mainly because Mark and Mike said, can you draw a duck? And <laughs> um, I drew one, and it was not very sophisticated. And there's a few other bits of my artwork later in the magazine. But also we got to get some really spanking artists. Pete Martin, who did some fantastic black and white work. Um, really talented guy. It was a pleasure to get his um, his art each issue. And I think you know that set of quite good artwork compared with some of the other. Yeah,
0: Hudson Shaw, was the ones that uh, uh, made uh, Dragon Lords quite distinctive, wasn't it? So uh, a lot of people who listen to the podcast who are fan of ducks in Glorantha, and uh, that uh, they were really a speciality, weren't they? So what I've um, I've got a here, uh, thanks to Shop on the Borderlands, I've got um, a copy of issue seven, actually. And um, what what I noticed, because I got some of the later ones, I think... When um, probably when the print run was higher I I picked up some at at Games Day and I think you can see the transition from the early ones which were very D&D focused to later ones which had more uh, Chaosium content but this this, uh, issue 7 perhaps give people a flavour of uh, what was in there so we've got an article here uh, by uh, Paul Mason on how to make uh, chivalry and sorcery playable
1: I don't think he ever succeeded in arguing that (laughs) one I don't think he did. I don't think. Um uh, Paul uh, is a very good friend. Um obviously he became my editorial assistant later on on White Dwarf, but he's he's been quite pivotal in shaping a number of things I I've, I've I've done.
0: And there's also um there's a, also an article on here by uh, Ian Marsh about Grenadier yeah. Grenadier figures. So we always um attracted to the miniatures.
1: Yeah, I I think, well, obviously, because I've had that, I've started with modelling and and moved on to Toy Soldiers. I mean, uh, sort of, Toy Soldiers have always been um, a big thing. I I have no shame in calling them Toy Soldiers, because even though that will, that's not what you can call them for 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 CE marks, because of the lead content of some of them. (laughs) um, that's what they are, and um, I don't think anyone should be ashamed of going, I play with toy soldiers. Um, they may be fine metal miniatures, but they're toys as well. Um, um, but, yeah, the miniature side of it's always been good. I've always, I think it's also because I had an interest in photography. Again, it's it's one of, one of those things, things I did at school. Um, the big issue on any fanzine was illustrative content, um, because you couldn't draw, you couldn't find artists, or you couldn't get photographs done. And we used an offset litho uh, printer so we could get pictures properly dot-screened for uh, reproduction in a magazine. Figures reviews are, are more possible, although I think I would have killed for a digital camera and, and desktop publishing Actually, yeah, back then. Uh, because Dragon is basically all done the hard way, um, with manual typewriters and a ridiculous period when I I think I justified the text using a manual typewriter, but um, the process of doing that is basically writing out the text on the grid first and working out where you need to put extra spaces. Oh. Um but so you know it is something you can only do if you've got the time and dedication. But it gave flush edges to the so you had justified-looking type, and it, I think it helped improve the look of a magazine at some time yeah
0: tell the kids today that and they wouldn't believe you would you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was nuts um so and probably still am um yeah. but yeah it's it, i think that's the hint of um what i should have got on to do and which obviously which is to do production of magazines which i um after i left white dwarf that's basically what i went on to do for 20 plus years as a journalist so um, um. perhaps
0: we'll, t- we'll talk about that um, later i mean you, you mentioned the irreverent tone and i think um me as a 12 um, year old 13 year old uh, back in the day that was what drew me to um uh, dragon lords because you always had a kind of an editorial line that um, kind of took on some of the uh, figures um some some of whom i didn't know who they were but, uh, <laughs> but but they you know you kind of took took them on and kind of t- uh, uh, made made fun of them you know particularly like uh, lewis Pulsifer for example and people like uh,
1: that yes yeah, probably still the dullest person in the universe <laughs> i'm sorry if he's still around but yeah it's oh dear um yeah there there's a certain style of writing and um I've come across it many times, and you go, why is this used? And you go, when you become an editor of a magazine, you go, because I've got a page to fill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not terrible, is, uh, is, the, um, is, is uh, the thing. Um, oh, gosh, is, is it Lewis Pulsler who designed Britannia, a board game? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. yeah, I think that was one of his finest ever creations. So having gone, well, yes, writing... Britannia was one of the most enjoyable ball games I think I've played um, it provided many hours of fun uh, but yeah so you know it just shows different talents you can yeah. can design a decent ball game it's uh, it's good but, but,
0: um, but as well it well uh, making fun of people he always he also had uh, articles which um, I suppose um, it reflect the spirit of the 80s um, and you know uh, when you read them now you kind of take a sharp intake of breath i think in, in this issue seven for example got um women in dnd i'm going to read a bit i'm not i'm not judging you don't worry uh, i'm gonna read a bit here i i, I read this this morning I, I thought it was funny um history so this is like a character class for uh for, for women in uh, D. it's well known that in the middle ages women were put in their rightful places by the gallant nobility. For this reason, we only allow women into dungeons wherein there are kitchens.
1: <laughs> I don't remember any of this.
0: Like I say, I'm not judging you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, we were teenagers, exactly. or very young, and, um, <laughs> and again, part of it is tug-in-cheek. Um, it's designed to inflame and get comment um i think that's something that is evident from the letters pages of uh, dragon lords that i know it's terrible to say but you'll say something you don't necessarily believe in order to stimulate debate because again well perhaps you do want discussion of a point you know women in dnd it's a good thing to discuss um and you want people's opinions on it Uh, and if you have to take a particular stance to get an opinion um, I think it's also the knockers debate I think from yeah. which I think I manipulated Yeah, uh, during Dragon Lord's history um, to, uh, to the extent that Ian Gibbs did a, um, a strip on it about a door which had a huge pair of breasts on it and, and seeing was opening was Opening was a key. It was basically to manipulate the knockers. Uh, <laughs> it's a stupid door joke, joke really. Um, but again, it's um, yeah, it was there to try to fill the magazine with, with hopefully stimulating ideas. Um,
0: and the letters page was probably the first page I always turned to because you did get some um, pretty memorable rants on in there, and uh, like you said, some debate picking up some finer point of uh, a, an article in the previous issue.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, the letters page was, was a vibrant part of of Dragons, and of course that was you know, we didn't have the internet then. Um, if you wanted to discuss anything to do with your hobby, the only means to do it was through magazines and fanzines and you know white dwarfs letters page was just a letters page just one side of a4 and which could barely cover anything um again something that changed when i started editing because it went up to two pages you didn't find out ideas unless people you wrote in and you know people were quite happy then to spend hours typing out letters and and then of course we'd pick something out out of a two page letter and use it completely out of context to make them look daft, <laughs> <laughs> and inflame them and get more writing. It is, it, it's you know, it's terrible to say manipulating your readers, but that's that's what it is. I think any. Magazine or letters page editor wants response from their readers, and the only way of getting it is to encourage them to say. And you get you eventually come across come up with people who are clearly very good thinkers on this particular is obviously games and games design. And, and you sort of get to know them and yeah, eventually get them to write for you. Well,
0: uh, one, one last thing on uh, Dragonlords the other, um, the other notable feature and there was um, your convention reviews and um talking about the convention scene and some of the things that went on there now you won't realize this but um in bolton i i always saw you uh, and mark as uh, kind of uh, rock star figures because <laughs> uh, i've got in front of me here a, a photograph that appeared in a, an early white dwarf of uh of you both with a, a a games workshop bag on your head
1: Oh, that's Mike. Yeah, Mike and and me. Um, yeah. Mark would not put a games work or carrier carry a bag <laughs> on his head. Um, yeah, it's it's publicity. It, it's basically uh, he got our pictures into White Dwarf. That's publicity.
0: It, so, what was what was going on there then? What the, the uh, convention scene? Is that how you came to the attention of people in Games Workshop, or how? how did well, yeah, you well, that?
1: basically, yeah, a well, way of of selling dragon lords is through small ads in white dwarf alas no more and by turning up at dragon meet and games day on the fanzine stand and ruthlessly selling um, the magazine i think we uh, i was talking again to mike about this and he says well yeah we were basically stunned everyone because we wouldn't just stand there meekly waiting for people to pick up a copy and peruse it but we'd basically stuff it in their hands and mug 50p out of them um, and you know but it got out and of course people then read it because so they basically it is it's part of a sales thing is once you've got something in someone's hands they've almost bought it you know they're always good as bought it it's very hard to put something down when you've got it in your hands um, so now you know that you'll never buy anything from a salesman again um, <laughs> I'm, making, I'm
0: making notes of that for my own fanzine, yeah. <laughs> i can learn from the best so so how did you make that um transition into being um you know a player uh, a fanzine uh, editor into uh, working for games workshop
1: and Boy, i did materials technology at university which is not fabric but in uh, sort of metals plastics and um and ceramics, which I got severely put off by exposure to the real world, which was basically a quality control lab for IBM, where I put rubber belts for cash point machines into ovens to cure them to get them to the right stickiness for cash points. And so we would give out the right amount of money instead of too much. Um, it was a big problem with Lloyds Bank cash point machines back in the early 80s. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was one of the cures for it, um and uh, you know, other exciting things like putting sticky labels on steel plates and putting them in a, a salt chamber for a week to see if they fall off. And I just kind of decided at that point that um materials science and I were not made for each other. I went back for my final year, and in that time, when it came to finals, there I was editing the magazine at the time, and doing the magazine was far more important to me than revising for my finals and um, and that said go into journalism really um, I think my tutor at the time had said have you considered um, working in sort of games and I said there's, you know, there's not much money in it um, there's very few opportunities I left university um, went back home to deal in Kent for um the summer and in that time I think White, White Dwarf had an advert for warehouse staff uh, um, when I basically started a Games Workshop in the warehouse along with many other terribly well qualified people who had degrees in physics or astrophysics and whatever but basically who were all all games players um, and obviously wanted to work for Games Workshop because I think it was pretty well the source of Everything that was good in role playing at the time, you know, was when it was still a a company with a which which sold D and D and RuneQuest and all the other role playing games because it was importing them from the states. So it was a you know a wonderful time to be in a workshop where you a workshop where you basically had everything there in, in the warehouse. Um, and but that I was there for about three months, I think, because I've been always been fairly numerate. I went and helped out in the accounts department occasionally for Games Workshop. This is when the accounts was done on Commodore PET computers, a cassette based um, computer with a green screen. Um, But anyway, so um, accounts were keen to grab me, but um, Stuart um, said, look, don't jump at that one. Wait, there's something coming up in January. And that was basically being editorial assistant to um, Jamie Thompson on White Dwarf. Had, there were, I think were two of us in the running, and it's one of those things where you go when you're asked what makes you particularly suitable for the job, and you go, "Duh, <laughs> <laughs> do I have to answer that? Because um, I've been doing this for what, three and a half years, or three years, as um, so I know what it's like to run a magazine. So uh, basically, yeah, I started in the I think in the January of 1984 issue. Was it fifty? One, I think my first name credit is as editorial assistant. I started a workshop and my dad was never particularly happy about it. My mum's wonderful because she relates a story about how basically uh, my dad came back for Christmas and my dad said, well, you know, how's it doing? You know, I don't suppose you're making very much. And I just put my Christmas pay packet on the table in front of him and he shut up. Workshop used to give a bonus at Christmas time. So you've got a substantial Amounts of money it makes up for being ruthlessly underpaid for the rest of the time so they haven't changed there um (laughs) it's it's not unique um i think so my initial salary at workshop was three thousand four hundred a year
2: my goodness
1: yeah back in 1983 when i left on from dwarf i was only on seven and a half thousand uh as editor i moved into a sub-editor's job on a a trade paper at ten and a half thousand a level of pay is if you want to. If you love a job, you often won't get paid for it. But many people know that
0: this was post-fighting fantasy, wasn't it? So, was Ian Livingstone very much engaged in uh, editing the magazine, or did he just leave you to it?
1: I think Ian's been was particularly engaged in editing the magazine after the first twelve issues. Um, one thing that thing you know, articles on Wikipedia, or anything never cover, is the role of the assistant editor on. The magazine the assistant editor has by and large been the editor yeah. uh, in everything apart from names so people like andy slack and jamie thompson have done all the work and got none of the credit for it and yet they're the people who basically put white dwarf together um i think albie Fiore did as well and john sutherland who was uh, between me and um, jamie um basically you don't get the credit so you know they should be credited as editors of the magazine um so that's, similarly my actual editorship of the magazine is more than the the three issues I've got the title because uh, I'd been doing it for a year before then pretty well.
0: Ian Livingstone's role was just a as a figurehead.
1: Yeah well I yes but you know he's he's has a big company along with steve uh they've got projects such as fighting fantasy to deal with yeah. um they've you know they're doing more than than just a magazine a magazine is there after all to sell their products um and you know you can entrust it to to someone else and as long as they are by and large doing a decent job of of promoting what you stock um I I one thing it often comes up is the bizarre idea that White Dwarf um stopped being independent and started only covering Games Workshop games. I mean it's always only ever covered stuff that Games Workshop sold. Yes. Um, you know, anyone who, who thinks it was that independent is is um mistaken. Um but by and large, as editor you're left to your own device about what to put in so what you've got is stuff that's come into the warehouse for re- for a stock and for review so you your content is decided by the contents of the warehouse when it comes to new product and reviews um and it wasn't until fairly late in the procedure that um um that there was a, an in- start of an insistence to start including material on on things. I know I certainly got told not to put any more Golden Heroes in because they were stopping the game, um, despite the fact that every time I put a Golden Heroes article or scenario in, the game sold more. Um, But obviously it wasn't one of the biggest sellers. It's a shame because um, as a superhero role-playing game, I think it worked really well. It's Simon Burley... Had a good system, and um, I used used to play it a lot at weekends in a fairly involved campaign.
0: And uh, what do you think that you brought to uh, White Dwarf? Then, so during that period when you were the uh, assistant editor,
1: uh... punctuality. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> uh, when I turned up, it was about three months behind. Um, Jamie is great, he's very creative. Um, I think he's got, uh, his Dark Lord books are quite wonderful. But he's always been a bit lazy, if <laughs> he doesn't mind me saying that. And trying him to get him to do stuff on time was impossible. So basically, I, my first job, basically, turning up on Dwarf, was to uh, start getting on time. I'm, I was very arranged, because Jamie had too much work to do. So I started as editorial assistant, doing the letters and everything. Um, so dealing with contributors, Um and, you know, eventually when I moved on to assistant editor it was basically making sure it came out on time um, and then also trying gradually to bring in the influences of of fandom um, because the various fanzines had produced some very good writers and some interesting ideas about about role playing and trying to get that thinking side of role playing into White Dwarf rather than it all being just stuff you could pick up and use. I think it is quite important for White Dwarf, this is where we I differed with Paul Coburn, um, is basically your readership is not all the thinkers, the you know, radical fanzine people who are urging you to do things. It's ordinary people who don't necessarily have much time and want to be able to just play a scenario. And so they need something that comes out each month, so they've got something to play without much thought. Yeah. just... There bits you want, sometimes you just turn up, go, I can pick this up, I can do this, play it, and we're good for a month. So one thing I did in White Dwarf, I made sure, I think, while D&D was still popular and made sure there was a, a D&D scenario each issue, and then AN a- other scenario for a different system. So whether it's Golden Heroes, Call of Cthulhu Rune Quest, or whatever variety in the stuff that was easy to use. Also get rid of some of the stale bits and the departments particularly. Um, yeah, that, <clears throat>
0: I think I think that's a bit that um, you can notice. So some of those uh, regular departments and uh, features seem to kind of um, go away at uh, this at this point. And uh, yeah,
1: I I basically. There are a lot, a lot of contributions to White Dwarf, um, particularly for Fiend Factory. Not all of high caliber. Yeah? This is all stuff produced by small boys who, who produce ripping machines of monsters uh, with no value other than to kill for party. Um, and so, so, not not interesting. Um, yeah, I'm sure it's fascinating when you create it, and there's basically your filing cabinet full of monsters from dnd players and whatever um same for magic items and tricks and traps and all sorts and i think all the department editors were finding it difficult to find stuff to go in i think i'll i'll put dave morris as the exception because dave will just write stuff as required so he, he he's very fertile as a as a a a player and writer and referee, so he just he can produce for goods when you when you need it. Um, David is is uh, is absolutely memorable because my first encounter with him was um when I was editorial assistant newly in on the magazine and he turned up at ten in the morning for a chat with Jamie. Uh put his feet on my desk, pulled out half a bottle of whiskey and poured himself a glass <laughs> 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 um and and you I can't it's just something you can't forget so you made an impression um of course I went on later to go and play in, on Dave's Thursday night game in London and Dave basically introduced me to tech email, um as a as a role-playing background um although Empire of a Petal throne had obviously appeared in early issues of, of white dwarf it's never really been a big commercial set of rules but it's got got the most fantastic background Um, and when she has developed as a role player having all that to to work with is just an incredible opportunity so I think from Dave's games I've ended up playing a long-running tech game for something like 10 years Uh, under various systems Dave's was based on Dragon Warriors I think, which is his little book of fantasy role-playing rules and scenarios Um, then GURPS didn't particularly work very well and then some one of the newer Tecumor systems but I say unfortunately I don't think any of them have had any real commercial success despite the fantastic depth of background
0: Just to um, fast forward to uh, the present Um, do you still game on a regular basis?
1: Um, Role playing no Um, So So when did um, did you stop role playing? Well, The trouble is I moved down to the Isle of Wight in 1999 which Basically, I lived in Wandsworth, not far from where the old airfix factory used to be, actually. Um, and um, we all basically got different jobs or moved away. So three of the players are in America, uh, one in Portland, two in Chandler. Um, I think the referee still somewhere in, in South London. Uh, it's one of the other players. And basically people moved away. Um Lee Brimingham was just another member of the group. you may know him from a number of his his board games. Um, he moved to Sweden for a period. and you know, basically all splintered. and um, you know, we'd reached a a good point, ten years or so of playing with pretty well the same characters, um, never particularly high powered because the, say the interest in the game was um, the background and the and the story and the sheer terror deference to Patrick Brady's um, refereeing style of some of the monsters. You don't even see it, but you're damn well afraid of it. Um, <laughs> it it's just, yeah, there is one thing we go, we will never speak of that again, and <laughs> we don't. <laughs> so so the problem is for role-playing, um, you know, I, I, I reached, I think, the natural... Conclusion of you know I don't have a games group, keep thinking about it occasionally now. But I mean, we must have stopped playing properly about ten years ago. But well, that's it. So, um, but I think back in I think '95-ish, even though we'd stopped doing fanzines and I'd stopped involved, being involved with uh, fantasy uh, magazines and such, uh, we all used to meet to continue the tradition of meeting up in pubs. So we used to have pub meets for for role playing. In various pubs across London, the postal gamers had the, the the lamb in Lamb's Conduit Street, and we went to the Sun. And one of these, I sort of met up with Mike again and said, I was thinking about starting back with Napoleonic war gaming, so going back to what I was doing in the early seventies. And he said, I just started that six months ago, and so um, we got going with um, Napoleonic's back playing. Uh, with Bruce Corey's, uh Napoleon's campaigns in miniature, because basically that's a set of rules we'd left off with, um, which were incidentally the rules that put me off um, Napoleonic wargaming. Um, and but that's what we had. and then we gradually evolved and played things like shako and pk and 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 so on. So I sort of had restarted conventional wargaming at that point and got my interest back in um, sort of toy soldiers and, as I said, started painting battalions of toy soldiers again.
0: <laughs> well, as we've uh, gone back to uh, where you started, that seems a, a good point uh, for us to end this part of the, uh, of the interview. And we're going to come back and you're going to face the Games Master screen. Um, uh, so until next time, Ian, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. Daily Dwarf,
0: crawling at you. Dagon. The thing about Dagon is this one is liable to run out of superlatives. Not my words, but those of horror writer and Cthulhu mythos iconoclast Brian Lumley. Just what was it about this Call of Cthulhu gaming fanzine that, from relatively humble beginnings, quickly transcended its origins to become a multiple British Fantasy Award winning publication, so that, even now, Decades after its last issue, it's still spoken off in tones of hushed, reverential awe. Well, by me at any rate. It's time to enter the esoteric world of Dagon. Carl T. Ford started his Call of Cthulhu fanzine back in 1983 as a way to share his scenarios with fellow gamers. His scenario, No Rumour Intimuth, was split over the first three issues, and the fanzine became a popular seller in the Dalling Road branch of Games Workshop. Now, as I mentioned in the Call of Cthulhu episode of the Grognard Files, I first heard of Dagon in the news pages of White Dwarf magazine. Come on, I had to get a mention of White Dwarf in here somewhere. By sending the princely sum of £4.50 to Mr Ford in deepest darkest Twickenham, a six issue subscription could be yours. I only started reading H.P. Lovecraft relatively recently at that time and I never played Call of Cthulhu RPG, but for some reason that escapes me now, I decided to take the plunge and subscribe. I'm so very glad that I did. By the time I started subscribing with issue 13, Dagon had already become a very professional looking publication. If there's one word to sum up Dagon, it's this. Quality. Sure, it had the staple features of other zines at the time, news, reviews and letters which contained contributions from the likes of Robert Block and Ramsey Campbell as well as regular missives from one Mike Mason. I wonder what ever happened to him. But the quality of the content, both gaming and fiction, the quality of the contributors The quality of the art and the production values meant that it stood head and shoulders above its contemporaries. What other fanzine could boast contributors of the likes of Ramsey Campbell, Neil Gaiman and Thomas Ligotti? What other fanzine could command regular gaming column from Mr Sandy Peterson himself? Or scenarios from the likes of Mark Morrison and Penelope Love? Consider the sheer quality of the art the beautiful, crisp, monochrome production of the fanzine was perfect showcase for the dripping, tentacled excesses of Dave Carson, the alien savagery of Alan Kozowski, the brooding shadows of Martin McKenna and the weird cosmic vistas of Dallas Goffin. From the front cover to the back, every issue of Dagon simply exuded quality. And remember, folks, This was all well before digital desktop publishing. Carl bashed out each issue on a manual typewriter. Fiction My first issue of Dagon, number 13, was the first to feature a glossy Astrolux cover. Maybe to celebrate this step up in quality, the issue was the first special devoted to the works of a single author. In this case, Brian Lumley. As an aside... I sometimes detected a bit of a sniffy attitude in some circles to Brian Lumley and his take on the Cthulhu mythos. I should say it's not one I share. I've always enjoyed his writing, and the story, Fruiting Bodies, remains one of my favourite weird tales. The author special format was then repeated in later issues for T.E.D. Klein and Thomas Lugotti and the weird monger himself, D.F. Lewis. As time wore on, Dagon tended to focus more on fiction, although, as we see, even in the issues that were dedicated to the writings of particular authors, it still contained some great material for the Call of Cthulhu RPG. When it came to fiction, though, Dagon seemed dedicated to introducing writers to its readership. While T.E.D. Klein was an established writer, I'd never heard of him prior to the double issue dedicated to his work. Thomas Ligotti is now a well-known horror writer, but when he was granted the honour of a special double issue back in 1988, as far as I'm aware, his collection Songs of the Dead Dreamer was only available in hard-to-find edition from the little-known US publisher Silver Scarab Press. What's all the more impressive, of course, is that this was all done prior to the advent of the internet. I've often wondered just how Carl Ford became aware of these various writers and their stories, and then persuaded them to contribute to the magazine. As with all other facets of the fanzine, the standard of the fiction of Dagon was very high. Two standouts for me were the Journal of J.P. Drepu, by Thomas Ligotti, in issue 20, and Diggory Smalls, by D.F. Lewis, in issue 24. The journal of J.P. Drepu is a quintessential Thomas Ligotti. The story's journal structure provides an episodic, fragmented narrative conjuring an hallucinatory atmosphere in which neither the reader nor the narrator can be confident of the line between dreams and reality. The narrator's sense of isolation is palpable. Although the journal entries are dated, the situation seems to take place out of time. Lagotti makes a playful spin on the Lovecraftian idea of the true reality hiding just out of view. This tale has the power to unnerve the reader with powerful use of some arresting imagery that brings to mind German expressionist cinema. Reading it back in 1987. It was a forceful introduction to the works of this compelling author. D.F. Lewis announced himself to Dagon readers with a disquieting prose poem, Fox Flesh, in issue 17, but his story, Diggory Smalls, is my favourite from all those published in Dagon. Having first read it in 1989, it's been lodged in the dusty attics of my brain ever since. The story mixes the unsettling horror motifs with jet-black humour in describing the journey of William Fitzsimmons and his mutant grandchild, Diggory Smalls, up through the reaches of their isolated ancestral home to find… well, that would be telling. There are echoes of both Mervyn Peake and Lovecraft's The Outsider in this tale, the creation of an inner world wholly cut off from reality, but the style is uniquely Lewis's. The dark humour works particularly well, I think, in keeping the reader off guard, a technique also used by Ramsey Campbell. Lewis never overplays the humour, though, maintaining a Magnus Mills-esque deadpan delivery throughout. Come on, Diggory, no time for larks! As the narrator states... Not everything is contained within the frame of reality. A concept reinforced by a story within a story ending. Thoroughly recommended. Dagan also featured a number of author interviews. Brian Lumley, Ramsey Campbell, T.E.D. Klein and Thomas Lugotti were all put under the spotlight. In each interview, Carl Ford really dug into the motivations and inspirations of the author and examined the writer's process. They all made for a fascinating reading, particularly when contrasting the approaches and struggles of the different writers. The undoubted highlight, though, was an interview with Carl Edward Wagner in issue 25, titled Blow Lamps and Wicked Milk. Maybe it was because the interview was conducted in Dave Carson's flat, or maybe it was the presence of a bottle of Jack Daniels, But Karl struck up a real rapport with Wagner in a rare, wide-ranging and thoroughly entertaining interview. Karl Edward Wagner may be best known for the Kane fantasy novels, but he really opened up to Karl on all his work in the horror and fantasy genres. He tantalisingly mentioned a film collaboration with Sam Peckinpah that sadly never came to pass, as well as the time he unintentionally masqueraded as Clive Barker at a book signing. It's all given additional poignancy by the fact that Carl Edward Wagner died just a few years later. Gaming. As I've said, Dagen tended to concentrate more on fiction as time went on, but it never forgot its roots as an RPG fanzine. It was always there on the cover for the players of Call of Cthulhu. None other than the author of said role-playing game, Mr Sandy Peterson, wrote a gaming column in Dagon called The Acolyte. It was a mixture of news, rumours and gaming tips, short, punchy and always informative. Maybe unsurprisingly, Sandy would always cover upcoming KLCM releases, but it was clear that Sandy also read Dagon, as he often responded in his column to articles and ideas from previous issues, such as a follow-up to an article on guns in Call of Cthulhu from Mark Morrison. Shoggoths don't kill people, guns do. Add in the odd bit of humour, such as the lyrics to a well-known Australian song, Waltzing Cthulhu, and it always made a fun read. When it came to Call of Cthulhu scenarios, Dagon readers were spoiled for choice. Andy Benison had many published over the years, and had ideas very much ahead of their time. He wrote several single-player scenarios, years before Cthulhu Confidential was even a twinkle in Robin D. Law's eye. Scenarios such as The body on the Beach, where players familiar with the mythos are tricked into seeing things that aren't really there, and The Last of the Clan MacMere, a kind of alone against the cultists, were well received by the readership. For me, though, his best scenario was You in Your Small Corner in issue 20 with its bleak no-win premise and an inevitable descent into despair. It foreshadowed the ideas pursued in Graham Wormsley's recently kick-started Cthulhu Dark. It seemed to divide opinion on the letters page, generally well-received, but some didn't like the fact that there was no escape for the players. It struck me, though, as a great atmospheric recreation of a Lovecraftian tale. Also, the scenario broke the fourth wall, by including the actual stories of the Cthulhu mythos within the game world itself. Ultimately, the last word on this scenario should go to Thomas Ligotti, who commented in the letters page, Very entertaining and instructive on the essentials of horror, and the title is excellent, Worthy of Ramsey Campbell. After reading that, I wonder if Mr Bennison ever came down from that particular high. Mark Morrison contributed an outstanding scenario in each of the two author specials devoted to T.E.D. Klein and Thomas Ligotti. In both, he skewed the monster-of-the-week approach to many scenarios that appeared in fanzine, and instead crafted adventures of subtle brooding horror that really captured the voice of the writer in the issue's spotlight. I've spoken about his Ligotti-inspired scenario, In a City of Bells and Towers, on the Grub Pod before. Suffice to say, it is very unsettling setup. The PCs experience a dreamlike shifting dark night of the soul as they wander into an unnamed city in old Europe, unsure of their grasp on reality. The scenario inspired by TED Klein Landscrapes is simply marvellous. The same issue contained Mark Morrison's article Keeping Alla Klein in which he discussed recreating Klein's worldview in the game. How to build a satisfying climax without the straightforward big bad monster encounter. Foreshadowing events to throw players off guard. And not leaving the players with easy explanations. He then put all this advice to use in landscapes. Where the players experience the conflict between the city and the country. As their investigators are stranded in an isolated farm. Events rapidly escalate as the PCs are threatened by a fecund, perverse nature running riot. It brought to mind Klein's short story The Events at Porath Farm, while still maintaining a style all of its own. Fantastic stuff. So good, in fact, that it made recommended reading list in 1988's Year's Best Fantasy and Horror. There are so many other highlights I haven't mentioned. The Return to Arkham comic strip, a collision of Brian Lumley's words and Martin McKenna's art in a gloriously over-the-top cautionary tale, the moral presumably being that you can't choose your family. Penelope loves beautifully written Call of Cthulhu scenario Wild Beasts, Harry o. Morris's chilling illustration for the story of autumn horror in the Ligotti special, Stacey Clarke's comprehensive list, the books of the Cthulhu mythos, The list goes on and on and on. And suddenly, the Dagon Press stopped rolling. Issue 28 promised to cover the Polish writer Stefan Grabinski, an H.P. Lovecraft anniversary special, where various writers discussed their favourite Lovecraft stories was also planned. But sadly, they never materialised. If you want to get a hold of copies of Dagon now, you have to head to eBay having previously cast a spell, summon cash. For those who remember Dagon back in the day, there's also a Friends of Dagon Press group on Facebook. I like to think, though, that there's an alternative dimension. Dagon continued to be published, went from strength to strength, and Carl Ford received the fame and adulation he so richly deserved. But even in this more mundane reality, maybe the Dagon fanzine is not dead. But merely dreaming just waiting until once more it can unleash its arcane esoteric influence over us all when the stars are right open box welcome to open box i'm in the room of role-playing rambling with Blythe. hello Blythe.
2: hello Duke.
0: now maybe we should be in separate rooms for this one send in each other reminiscences in missives. Separate Be- houses. Separate houses, separate, yeah. Separate countries. And creating a great chain of replies and responses from the past to the present because we're talking about postal games, PBMs. Now, Blithe, Dirk. You're going to have to help me here. Yeah? Yes.
2: You, you know don't you? I know, I know. I know you're psychologically scarred by a postal games. Yeah. Are you?
0: no, I've got. Uh, I have been treated for post-traumatic stress when it comes to <laughs> postal games. Well, come on for the reasons for that. Post-traumatic stress. Post- Very good. Very good. The people say I labour with the jokes. <laughs> Listen to that? I've. That had, tra- I, yeah, I have. I've had <laughs> post-traumatic stress counselling to help me through uh, postal games. You know, I'm. I, I believe, I've spoken to my therapist, Tony Bob, and he tells me, <laughs> he yeah. tells me, I'll be alright, yeah. but if I get too far, I've got to say a safe word. Okay, what's that? Well, what do you think? I don't know. Any I, suggestions?
2: I don't know. Fish fingers. Fish fingers? Fingers? I don't like you saying fingers. Yeah. We've been through this before. It gives me post-traumatic stress, the time he kept saying fingering. Fish fingering. Fish fingering? Fish fingering? Fish fingering. <laughs> no, just that's fish even more
0: upsetting than
2: the, the very idea of it.
0: If I get anxious, I might say fish fingering. You're just going to have to be aware of that.
2: Well, in that case, I'll take no action. And I want I not I I the, If the safe word's fish fingers, I expect fish fingers to be said.
0: By the way, that's two words. That's two
2: safe words. Yeah, so. well,
0: you, you can't be too sure, can you? No. Right. <laughs> Here we go. So... I'm talking about um postal games and uh, PBMs, so I think I I think this is in the period around nineteen eighty four when we left school. Yes, yeah. I think when we've been talking in the podcast so far, we've been mainly talking about those very early years, haven't we? The, yeah, this was a
2: bit later, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. It, yeah, yeah. this was the halcyon days. These were the this was a time when we were doing, we were playing games all the time, weren't we?
2: Well, it was. It was the time when we left school and went to college, and of course that gave us a lot more free time, largely because we didn't go to college. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, we were supposed to be at college, so we had a lot more free time, um, and of course we filled the free time. The vacuum was filled with gaming, wasn't it? Yeah. So it, it, it built up a kind of head of steam, really, didn't it? Yeah. You know, you know. and I suppose as well. Get a little bit older, a bit more freedom, haven't you?
0: Yeah, Yeah. and uh, well, I think uh, I think as well that time when we left school. So in the in the May or June we left school up until starting college. I mean, students today would not believe this, but we were actually paid money to actually stay at home and play games. It's it's a stupid concept. That you could yeah you could you could sign on the dole couldn't yeah, you yeah we were you signing sign on. on the
2: dole and you also got a grant remember that yeah
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> well we had we, we, we were signing on over the summer getting paid to it was it's a state sponsorship program for playing well playing games
2: it was it was really yeah it yeah. was yeah, it's, it's funding the gaming economy state funded yeah. funding of the game
0: economy i think i've said before that you know that it was a long-term investment and people are reaping the rewards of it now with this podcast you know we they were
2: yeah,
0: there they are, yeah yeah so at, at that time when we were playing over that summer we were looking at ways to supplement how we could play even yeah. more games and return to postal games as a way of doing that well we, we did it was the it was the age-old problem which we've,
2: we've talked about several times in this podcast of this is the olden days before the internet and and also you know we didn't have cars we didn't have access to a car did we no. Um, so we couldn't travel any great distance so there was that problem of finding more gamers and playing more games and postal gaming which you would see advertised in the back of White Dwarf yeah postal they all have see, names in
0: like Tribes of Crane yes yeah and, Starmas and also
2: just people putting their own small ads for their own postal yeah. games and, yeah. uh, which I'm sure we'll come on to but there was that idea wasn't there that this seemed a perfect solution to the idea of not just playing more because it wasn't really about playing more, it was about finding new people to play with and experience their way of playing the game. Because yeah. we there was, there was three or four of us who would play regularly and of course we had all the time in the world so we could play endlessly but there was still that desire wasn't there to see how other people did it because we were in this vacuum. And yeah. that was the. I, and looking back on it, I think that was the feeling other people got. That's why people offered to run postal games because it was an opportunity to kind of reach out and find other players in a world where, as we've said before, you you could be the only person with a copy of RuneQuest in your town. You could be yeah. sitting there with a role playing game, thinking, "Well, i wouldn't mind, mind playing this, but no one will play it with me."
0: And even if there were people there, you didn't know they were there because. No, yeah. there was no way of finding them. This yeah. is it. It
2: sounds like the dark ages, doesn't it? <laughs> so, so I feel like my dad talking about <laughs> an age without the internet where you were really just stuck on your own in a small town and you couldn't leave.
0: Yeah. I I do think there was a, a part of it, though, that was, like, supplementing the habit. Yeah, you, yeah. You know, like these people who were uh, nicotine patches, not too... Play smoking, but to help to get an additional kick (laughs) on top of the (laughs) forty Yeah, there was was that. There was that. Yeah, it was a way of getting more gaming in. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think it was you. You you went for one of those uh, professional ones, didn't you? Was it Krasimov's World? Yeah,
2: I I can't remember. there's Krasimov's World or Tribes Ukraine. But what was what was interesting about it? And I think this kind of it was almost like a it was almost the warning what was to come yeah in that I sent off for I think it was Tribes of Crane and of course what came wasn't a role-playing game it wasn't a role-playing game at all it was a kind of uh like a postal Mm. game but it felt it felt kind of kind of computer game where you put in your moves and I think they might have fed it into a computer I'm not sure yeah but but it it... felt very much it, it felt very much like kind of chess by post
0: yeah you, you know that idea that or, or I think it was more for me from what I can remember of it, it's more like an analogue version of um, civilization
2: yeah that's yeah that's a good that's a good uh, a good comparison yeah it felt a bit like that so it sort of left me cold a bit because it, it wasn't what I was after it, was, it wasn't a role-playing no. game yeah, no I'm not sure about Krasimov's world I'm not sure if that was I don't think that was a role-playing game as no, such no. I think you played a party of adventurers I might be wrong but I think you played a party of adventurers and um, even that felt like well, it's, not, it's not really role playing, then, is it?
0: And I think it, a factor in those were that it, they weren't role playing games, they, weren't, they were more like turn based mm, strategy yeah. games, weren't they? Where you could have an influence on the outcome of something. Yeah. And the other players could, were, in, you were in competition almost, I think. Yeah. But it was computer moderated. That's right. And it felt computer moderated, didn't it? Yeah, and though? it
2: felt, it didn't feel, it didn't seem to be or feel like the kind of thing I was looking for. And I think there's a reason for that, and I think, I, I think it's something that probably worked very, very well postally, through the post, you know, it worked very well, because yeah. it was designed specifically to be played in that way, I think that's, that became part of the problem, Than mm. some of the games we wanted to play, I'm not quite sure how well they worked by post, because I had a later experience playing D&D by post, which was quite funny.
0: <laughs> um, so, so tell us about this then, this,
2: this was a guy in Northern Ireland This was, was a guy in Northern Ireland, yeah and he played, he, he, I think he might have been in the back of White Dwarf There was uh, an advert for uh, basic D&D, not advanced, basic no. That seemed reasonable, reasonable idea through the post, I don't want to get ahead of myself do I? Playing no. advanced D&D, so no. stick to basic, uh, in case the postal concept blows my mind um, And it was D&D through the post, but, but the problem with it was it, 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 was, it was played like a game, it sounds ridiculous to say this was the problem but you, you'll see why in a minute. It was played like a game of D&D. So there I was, and, you know, I, was, it was a, I don't know what, I can't remember if I played a party of adventurers or whether I was just one adventurer, but in any event, you know, you went down a corridor and you came to a door. So you'd say, you, come to a door and you'd think, okay, well, I'll listen at the door. So you'd write back, I listen at the door. Put it in an envelope put an envelope write the envelope put a stamp on post it wait for maybe a week maybe a bit longer you get an envelope back you would open the envelope here we go here we go i've listened at the door open the envelope you don't hear anything <laughs> okay right well, i'll tell you what i'll try i'll try and uh try the door i try the door try the door put it in the envelope write the envelope, put put stamp on, post it, go to the post box, post it. Yeah, don't, post don't forget it. your stamped address envelope. Oh yes, for, for, the, for the reply, of course, of course, yeah. 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 Uh, and then wait a week and then get a, go on, did, did it open? The, did it, it was locked. The door's locked? It door's locked. Door's locked, okay, um, door's locked. We'll tell you what, I could I could try and pick the lock, couldn't I? You know, it's getting exciting now, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I'm yeah. sure <laughs> people listening on the edge of their <laughs> seats. I've no choice. Lost? I could try and pick the lock, my thief could try and pick the lock. I'm I fight, I barely fight because I try and kick it in, I, I kick it in, I'm getting a bit, not that I'm getting frustrated, <laughs> but I think I might just kick the door yeah. in, right. So, so you, kick, you have to send kick, that off? I sent, I put, you know what I did, I had to put in an envelope, I had yeah. to write an envelope, I put a stamp on it, don't forget the stamped address the envelope, post those to the post box, post it, uh, and then yeah, wait for go on, go on. Um, Did he, get, get, he, he failed the roll? Did, didn't kick it in, Oh. didn't kick it in, he'd failed. Uh, so what did he do next? I think I tore it into a thousand pieces <laughs> and didn't reply. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. But, it, but to me, it was, a, it was an example. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, and of course, there, w- there would have been ways around it. The way we were doing it was kind of silly because really what I should have done is I'll listen at the door, I'll try the door. You know, if there's nothing, if there's no noise behind the door, I'll do this, I'll do that. You could have put a few more options in, but we didn't play it like that. And it did highlight to me fairly early on that it didn't quite work. It didn't work because it's a bit like what we talked about Roll 20, you know, playing online. We've said how playing online is a slightly different experience. It modifies the experience. It's not like playing around a table. But in fairness to Roll 20, it's not hugely different. But I think a postal game felt hugely different to playing it around a table, just in terms of the sheer the, the turns, you know, just yeah. the sheer glacial glacial movement of
0: it. Well, I think I think shortly afterwards, um, shortly afterwards, uh, you you played that. I uh, responded to a small lad in um, White Dwarf, uh, come to the arena, and what this was was a. Uh, the Gladiators Gazette it was a fanzine um, that was a Postal f- Games fanzine where you could use all different systems Tons and Trolls RuneQuest d and um, Dragon Quest was yeah. in there as well and you could create a character in there and you could take your character to the arena and what it would do is you would pitch yourself against NPCs in the arena and it was possible to have a fighter and a gambler mm. so you could put Wage against the different battles that were coming on, and every month we'd get a fanzine and it would describe the fights uh, and that and that thing. Sometimes it took longer than uh, yeah, uh, longer than that. If you've got the uh, first uh, Grognard files fanzine, you'll be able to see pages from that because I've read yeah. about it. Mm. But I, I, bec- it, it took over my life the gladiator. <laughs> Um, I remember this. Yeah. This is where the rot starts to set in yeah. with me in the uh, portal game because I was kind of captivated by it because very soon after it started, it began to transform from being about fighting to being about the characters mm, yeah. that people had generated, the gladiators. The gladiators had personalities. And it started to develop that they communicated with each other yeah. and formed allegiances and alliances, made enemies mm. and uh, it was all done within this scene. It was, it was like written in a way that was like completely gonzo. Yeah, And uh, well I remember that
2: and I remember, I mean I probably didn't think it quite as clearly as I'm thinking it now in reflection but I think what was very apparent with Gladiator Gazette was again it wasn't like a role-playing game so it was it was founded on the idea of role-playing games and they had these these rule sets that you've got and character generation and what have you but I always remember those later issues of it reading some of them you know in your bedroom and thinking that it's not it's not like a role it's not like what we play around a table it's very very different it worked I think it worked but it worked because in the, in the same way that the D&D game I played didn't work because it was t- m- small you know, turns, come to a door, listen at the door, try the door, check for traps. It doesn't work because it's too slow. What Gladiator's Gazette did was it, it went in the opposite direction where it had a more of a broad brush approach, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it did things mm. in a broader way where the games master would, was rolling several dice per issue and so several things were happening. Yeah, it
0: was that two turns. I think you could yeah. describe two turns. So. Yeah.
2: But I think that, that's what was, it was interesting that it, again... Whilst that worked, it didn't quite feel
0: like no. It did around a table.
2: It's not to say it wasn't fun. No, but it wasn't quite role play.
0: It captivated my imagination. Yeah. And I think I can't remember where the chronology is in this because that's the problem with this, isn't it? It's like thirty like yeah. years ago, but it was in that summer. And I'm going to do this now. Um, I, I'm just uh, let me just have a quick cup of tea before I start this. <laughs> just to are, are you sure sure yeah, you do this I, I think I can <laughs> so I had this idea of running our own postal game you did yeah so we sat in uh, my bedroom um, one sunny summer's afternoon and we invented a world and it was a great experience so it was me you and Eddie yes. and we invented a world we did and we created this land called Raklash. yes and it was an island that was built by the elements of light and dark. And it was where well, the gods battled on this island. Very original. Yeah, I mm. think
2: so. Be careful what you say, Pete. I don't want people stealing this idea.
0: <laughs> very, very original. So okay. on, on, on this island, they had this pitch battle. And Ilno, that's the light thing. Yes. You know, struck down Darko, that's the... Uh, <laughs> Is that what we called it? Darko? Yeah. Ilno and Darko. It's good! Yeah. It's good, it yeah. leaves no room for ambiguity. <laughs> That's true.
2: There's no mistaking Who's the god of darkness? Um, Darko. Oh right, I'll, I'll
0: remember that. So, Ilno throws a shuriken, a throwing star, at Darko. Yeah. It's called the Sun Star. Yeah. And it strikes his chest and shatters. Killing Dark or yeah, and he falls and light. Can we just remind people listening?
2: Yeah, we, we were fifteen. We were fifteen. <laughs> we were fifteen. I want that. Yeah, yeah. I want that noting, <laughs> We were fifteen. So the pieces of the sun star were scattered.
0: I think we'd watched Krull, had not we? And I
2: it, think we'd watch we'd watch Krull and we, we were enraptured by galantha So it's yeah. a weird combination of Krull and galantha yeah. yeah. How can we mean galantha so that we can understand it? Yeah. We'll write our own We'll write our own uh, crap
0: version of it. Yeah. And it'll be then be comprehensible. Yeah. And then I think <laughs> what we did then is um, split the um, Ireland up. So mm-hmm. the idea is, is that we would send people on a postal game, we would have two parties each, so you would games master for two parties. So you would have two, Eddie would have two, I would have two. That's how it was going to work.
2: Yeah. yeah. So... Why do I, why do I detect some sense of recrimination in your voice? Well,
0: there's a high horse waiting in the, uh, uh, in the yeah, wings yeah. here. Yeah. Back! 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 <laughs> back! <laughs> uh. Wait for your cue, high, high horse. <laughs> right? So, so, we came up with this, and the idea was we would have a group of trolls, a group of elves, and some human mm. um, yeah. things and dwarves, and we'd create these uh, parties of game masters, and it'd be a race to recover the, the pieces, the yeah. pieces yeah. of the yeah. Sunstar. Yeah. It'd be an epic campaign. Yeah. It would be easy because we were only doing two parties each. Yeah. Back! back
2: <laughs> right
0: so so we wrote our advert on that afternoon we created it because we'd we'd all decided that we were going to do it and we wrote this issue 59 white dwarf are you ready for this okay we counted out the words got yep. a postal order sent it off to white dwarf quest pbm for six people six people six people it was for yes on the island of racklash for information, send a stamped address envelope to me mum and dad's address. Yeah. So, we sent it off. Right, hi, horse, you can come in now. So we went to the post box, <laughs> and it hadn't even hit... I don't remember, I don't, I think it... I don't, No, it hadn't even hit the bottom of the post box when you and Eddie said, I'm not sure I can do it. I don't really want to do it. Are you sure we... we I can't do it. So I ended up doing it on my own.
2: Well, y- yeah, you say that, and that puts me and Eddie possibly in poor light. It does, because yeah, yeah, me and Eddie don't have a safe word <laughs> for when Postful Games are mentioned,
0: do we? So who's <laughs> an idiot now. <laughs> anyway, it went, it went off. It went off to White Dwarf, and I think forgot about it. Well, I think we forgot about it because summer happened. And it took a while for it to appear, didn't it? it took months and months and months. And at this time, it was a bad time um, because I think my mum and dad were a bit concerned that um, role-playing games were taking over my spare time. Well, they were right.
2: They were right. They were right. The, I mean whether life. you should be concerned about that is moot point. Yeah. But it was it's
0: true, they did take over our lives. Yeah. yeah. And I think uh, the tipping point was when um I ordered from the back of one of those Sunday supplement magazines. You know mm. where you could get um books for oh, a yeah, pound. Yeah, you joined a book club and yeah, you, book got, club. you got you yeah. got like seven
2: books for a quid. And then you had to buy three of them over the course of twelve months or something, something yeah, stupid yeah. like that. An
0: absolute bargain for a fifteen-year-old. Yeah. That yeah. seemed, it seemed like a good proposition. A good yeah. proposition. Yeah. So I got them delivered to my nan's house, yeah. and um, I joined this like mystery of, mystery and magic. Uh, oh yeah, book club. Mm, that yeah. 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 Do you remember it? I do. Yeah. And it arrived: dictionary of demons, mm. visions of the occult, some tarot <laughs> cards. <laughs> And um, something (laughs) else—a book on magic. Yeah, I thought they made perfect supplements these for our role-playing days. They arrived at my grandma's, and I think it nearly sent her over the edge. So my dad wasn't best pleased at the time. And then, before I'd even got the copy of uh, issue fifty-nine of White Dwarf, it started—the envelope started dropping. Yes. At first, it was five six seven you know that scene in uh, harry potter yes yeah <laughs> you know uh, the dumb, yeah. Dumbledore to go to hogwarts yeah. it started flooding in 134 people had written to me to join this and my dad said are you starting a cult what was he worried
2: about i mean if you start a cult usually all right <laughs> people who start cults benefit from it. Especially if people who join cults you've got to worry about. And you think about well, it, those, hundred, those 130 odd people, if you were starting a cult, they've got more to worry about than you as the starter of a cult or yeah, the founder right. of a cult. Well, they tend to do all right out of it, don't they? Yeah, say that to David Correct. Well, yeah, yeah, they are mass suicide, don't do well
0: out of that. But generally speaking... So I had all these 134 people who wanted to play. Now, a sensible person would have thought... No, there's six you know, a sensible person would have done, don't you? What? The minute it hits
2: the post box, I'm not doing it. <laughs> Me and Eddie, that's what a sensible person would have done. Said, do you know what? This is a stupid idea. For but six what people. A, what would a person who's not sensible do, first? <laughs> do? Do tell us, Dirk. What would a person who's not sensible do? I think we're going to find out, aren't we? So a person who's not sensible. Fish
0: finger. No. <laughs> the person, a person who is not sensible. <laughs> Decides right. I can't do it all. Can't do it all. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll do 24 of them. Yes. That's reasonable, isn't it? Because that's like. Well,
2: a... it seems that way when you say it. <laughs> <laughs> it seems that way when you say it, but there are a lot of things to do when you just when you just say them <laughs> rather than have to do them.
0: So I only had to disappoint. You know, I, I just over a hundred of them. So. I didn't. It didn't feel so bad. So it started then, didn't it? I, I did it. Now, I got it in my I he, my head. I didn't want it to be like your experience. Yes. I wanted it to be a bit more prosaic and a bit more of a narrative than the um, gladiators' gazette yeah, experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Which was which was the way to do it. I think we learnt that pretty yeah quickly, didn't we? That, that that was the way to do it because doing it turn by turn by turn dice roll by dice roll was was just an non starter because it just took forever
0: so I took the idea of doing it like a fighting fantasy mm. choose options Yeah. so I would write a paragraph so they would say what they wanted to do Yeah. and I, I allowed people to give two or three mm. instructions yeah. of what they would like to do and I responded and I gave options at the end of it so you may do this or you may do that but obviously very quickly people said, Well, I don't want to do any any of those options. Role players, you Is see. That's the whole thing yeah. with role players,
2: isn't it? Yeah. That they, they don't wanna they don't want to give them two fighting fantasy style options. They want the freedom to do other things yeah.
0: that they think are clever. So what started off as paragraphs ended up being four pages. <laughs> uh,
2: two pages. Oh, I remember, I remember it, and I remember. Um we were at college at the time, yeah and we sort of didn't go to college stopped going
0: to college and so I could write me so you could write those. Stuff, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think at the time did I start a Stormbringer one as well I oh Storm yeah, yeah yeah we said yeah, yeah. Johnny
0: come lately yeah <laughs> yeah
2: but well, I was much more controlled and sensible about
0: it <laughs> but and I was pulling all-nighters <laughs> um, writing these things, writing these things, but people loved it, people loved it and it fed you. Feeds the, it yeah. feeds it, yeah, it, feed the it. and I'd, I, I created a newsletter, The National Cobold um, <laughs> and it kind of stoked up a lot of interest, people were really interested in it and I was feeling, and the, uh, the satisfaction I felt when I pulled an all-nighter and I put 10 through the post box the next day uh, People were, were clamoring, clamoring for it, clamoring. but those ten would be back the next day because they wanted more, so I could never keep on you top never on top of it took over your life
2: you 're like the David Cassidy of postal gaming you holed yeah. up in a room with surrounded by
0: fans wanting yeah. a piece of you that 's what you became now the sensible thing would have been to kind of roll it back, but I started another I started another campaign because.
2: <laughs> I was enjoying it so much. I think the phrase we're looking for here is you're only yourself to blame. <laughs> and you tried to pin it on me and Eddie for backing out, but I don't think you can do that anymore. Yeah. You start another one, and you started the next one. That's, that's not but
0: right. after, that's silly. it must have been a, a, about 12 months, it became too much, so I did what I always do in these situations. fate your own death. I did, I
2: yeah. yeah. said <laughs> this podcast will end. Eventually, when these podcasts come to an end, it'll be yeah. me tweeting, Dirk has now died. Found his, found his clothes on Southport Beach. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, I just stopped. But I
2: think it's, it's quite telling, though, isn't it, that it got like that? Because it was that, uh, that teenage obsession with RPGs and wanting to play more and more and more of them and fill your life with them. Because that's, that's what yeah. we did at any given opportunity, didn't we? You know, we, we would do, we want to play role playing games, and postal gaming was just another medium for doing that, you know. Yeah. But like you say it does get slightly out of hand yeah it very out of hand it did <laughs> you'd it be would. better off joining a cult actually <laughs> you'd probably come out a bit better in better mental shape than you are now <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have fish fingers as a safe word yeah
0: I you know I think I think it came to a head the moment when I found myself in a room surrounded by bits of paper with paper clips self-addressed envelopes mm. and I just thought I think I
2: I might be wrong here but I recall having conversations with you where you'd ended up putting the wrong things in the wrong envelopes at one point point. people have then written back and said what what are you talking about (laughs) what's going on I don't remember anything oh no put the wrong thing in the wrong envelope
0: yeah yeah there's just so many of
2: them yeah (sighs) it became uh, crazy but again I think it it highlights doesn't it it's not just your at the time your obsession get more gaming in or my obsession to get more gaming in it it was about the fact there were other people in the country yeah who felt the same it is this thing that we've talked about a lot during these podcasts that back in the day back in the 80s while some people maybe if they were at university or they were part of a war gaming group had regular access to people who wanted to play role playing games for a lot of people it was a very solitary even though, in, in, in a way, a game yeah. is, of course, it's not solitary activity, is it? It's, an, by definition, requires other people to play the game with. But people found that difficult. They found, because it was a strange new thing, people didn't understand it, people didn't like it, people thought it was weird, whatever. People wanted to find players and couldn't. And that's why you got 130-odd people yeah. writing to you immediately. Yeah. And that's why those people... Replied within a, two or three days of getting it. That, that's why they were doing it because they, it's quite possible that some of those people had got a set of rules but just had no one to play with. Yeah, yeah. And postal gaming was, was the, the key to that, yeah. even though, as we said earlier, it, it did offer a different experience. It wasn't giving you quite what, for want of a better phrase, wasn't giving you an authentic role playing experience no, no. but it was giving you some kind of experience and yeah. therefore it was something people were very keen to do
0: what about now then so normally in this section we start off in the past and kind of consider and reflect on the future would you play uh, a play-by-email game for example
2: well we did we have tried that we tried that didn't we uh, a few years yeah, ago yeah we did actually yeah. about ten years ago yeah when we were both kind of bogged down with families and couldn't find anyone else to play with. Um, we did a Call of Cthulhu thing by yeah. email. That worked, that worked reasonably well.
0: We, we used a Yahoo groups, didn't yeah, we? That's yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah. But I think it, it, it worked well because I, I, I think the other thing that we've, we've not said about postal gaming is I think some RPGs work better than yeah. others. Yeah. So we played Cthulhu by email or by message. We would message every other day or every few days. But the beauty of Cthulhu is it's not about, you know, blow by blow role playing, is it? It doesn't no. involve, all, it does at times, but it doesn't involve, you know, combat or detail. So you can say in a turn, right, okay, I'm going to go to the library and I'm going to look up these things. And then when I've looked up those things, I'm going to go to the newspaper and talk to the editor about this, this, and this. And you can do quite a lot in a turn, can't you, with, yeah. with Cthulhu? Whereas other games, for example, the game of D and D I had, or, or other games even now, it's it's a trickier thing to do, isn't it? Because there's more, it's more small scale turns. I'm gonna hit him with my sword. I'm yeah, gonna cast this spell. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna do this. That's more difficult to play, even by email.
0: I would say. Yeah, yeah, you know, a bit more immediacy to email. I've been watching from afar, um, Kihav from Dissecting yeah. Worlds podcast he's been running a, a pendragon campaign mm. with some of the uh, podcast listeners um, and that seems to work well because you've got the cyclical nature of pendragon yeah um, yeah and yeah. it kind of lends itself to yeah. that it's the type of game isn't it the Yeah, the game is is is
2: such that you can probably i'm guessing do quite a lot in a turn.
0: yeah you know i keep saying i'll jump on and play but with the fish finger situation and everything, uh, you know, I'm better okay. staying away, from better that. Staying away from it. but I think I, another, I mean, another problem
2: with it that is is rolling of dice as well, because another aspect of a role playing game that yeah you miss is the rolling of dice. So the immediacy it, and, of it, the so. immediacy of that, and, and thinking, okay, right, I'm going to try and do this. Okay, right, you need a ten armor or, or you need a you know an eighteen armor or, or something like that. You think, oh, it's going to be difficult. Come on come on, let's roll the dice and see if we get it. But with the postal game or even by play by email, you miss that, don't you? Yeah. Again, the beauty of Roll20 is it allows you to roll the dice. You know, it allows you to see the dice roll and roll for damage and things like that. Whereas if it's done by post, it's slightly unsatisfactory to just get an email or a letter that says you take, you know, 2d8 damage what's it going to be oh it's a 16 it's maximum damage yeah is it I don't know not that you're saying that the the games master is somehow cheating but yeah but you don't see it rolled do you to not see the dice rolled it somehow takes something out of the, the process I think yeah yeah it takes something yeah, away from yeah. the enjoyment of it yeah. I think
0: well it might be something I will uh, go back to like I say I might jump onto that um, Pendragon game um, but we're having so much uh, fun with our online games and um, our face-to-face games at the moment it probably isn't the yeah. right time yeah uh, I'm
2: not sure I, I, have, I have sort of reservations about it yeah um, I mean I, I, I don't know does anyone actually play a postal game anymore I can't imagine anyone, would anyone play Would anyone do that it's an yeah. interesting question isn't it yeah people out there does anyone actually do a
0: postal, postal game gaming? Yeah. or has everyone defaulted to surely they've all defaulted to email well flying buffalo are a play-by-mail company so it's be interesting to if I do some research and find out.
2: Yeah, yeah, whether, yeah, I suppose, like a commercial play by metal game, but. Whether I can't people imagine can, a, an individual yeah,
0: wanting to, I don't know, I might be wrong there, but. Yeah. We'll find out, we, no? We doubt. might find out, yeah. It's time to leave the room of role playing, rambling for another uh, occasion, and we'll come back next time. Then we're going to have a look at some uh, fanzines, so okay. looking forward to that. Alright. Cheers, thanks, Bliding. See you, bye. There isn't another bit. Thanks to Shop on the Borderlands for providing a copy of Dragon Lords issue 7 for us to discuss as my originals have got seagulls flying over them at Rakes Lane tip following my mum's 1991 clear Thanks Thanks to, to Ian Marsh who is very gracious about taking the time in his busy schedule as a Fighting 15's Toy Soldiers distributor to talk to me. There's more next time about his a famous Acrostic in White Dwarf and his contribution to Just Dread RPG and his own version of Doctor Who role-playing game and more. Also next time, we'll be having a special postbag with me and Blythe looking at some of the listener suggestions of fanzines of note. It's not too late for you to send yours if you're listening to this as the show is published in July 2017. Send me an email at Dirtthedice at gmail.com and uh, telling us about some of your favourites. This whole podcast is merely a ruse for me to have a fanzine of my own and thanks to the Patreon campaign this is possible. The second Grognard Files fanzine will be available from November to all patrons wherever you are in the world. It's shaping up to be fantastic I mentioned last time that there's a contribution from Ken Andre. Well, you can add Liz Danforth to the list. If you want a copy, seek us out on Patreon or reach for the link in the grognardfiles.com. Joining the Patreon campaign this time at $1 is Joseph Scott, Robert Arcangeli, and Simon Tonkis. Thanks for the support, guys. There's also a couple of new uh, $5 backers too. And i like to give them something special from a table uh, featured in the episode. So this time I'm going to go for one of my own. The Encounter Table from our original booklet we produced for the Sunstar PBM campaign. One of the old school techniques we deployed to create the world of Racklash was to create a wandering monster table. So up front is Andy Young. He's gonna face an encounter from Narwhal Forest, a place that was previously submerged beneath the ocean. Okay, let me uh, roll for this then, and six. So you've me- you've met you've met a sharkman. So make him stay still because uh, he has to keep moving. Okay, Doctor R.P.G. Ian Griffith as Increased his pledge to $5 a month. So he's going to head for the Kingdom of Barkar and the Ketelian Hills where he meets a Bigfoot. There you go Doc RPG. He's all yours. I might have uh, fixed that one for you. Okay, thanks to everyone for their continued support and the Squad community. Our own corner of fandom. Doc Griffiths is the Gamesmaster master for a forthcoming grog meet in manchester in november he's running paranoia which was recently selected in a patreon poll to be a subject in an end of year podcast the grog zine is being created over the next few weeks and we have a number of online games for patrons lined up before the end of the year Ringquest, Gangbusters. Also, I'll be running Two-Headed Serpent online at the beginning of 2018. We're almost at our next stretch goal too, which will unleash Grod Squad merchandise. Fishfinger! Adios, amigos.